Our reading today from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. The words are going to come up for us on the screen. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus says, as Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I am not lost. Sorry, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. I shall not drink the cup, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The detachment of soldiers with its commander of Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. In our series in Jesus, we've been looking at how Jesus holds together uh, things that normally might be seen as separate. And today we're looking at courage and fear. How to face your fears. Because we all face fears in life. And I don't know what your fears are tonight. Maybe you fear failure. Maybe you fear loss. Maybe you fear loneliness. Maybe you fear uh, ill health or you're fearful for the future. Uh, and maybe you fear that you've missed the moment in some way or miss the person. Maybe you fear that you might do the wrong thing or that you might not have what it takes to do what you have to do. And in life, there are reasonable fears and there are irrational fears as well. And I just want to be really honest with you tonight. I've got a completely irrational fear. Uh, I'm terrified to my bones of roller coasters. And uh, that wouldn't normally be a problem because generally you can just avoid them. Uh, but when I was dating Beth, who's now my wife, I felt I couldn't avoid them because she loved roller coasters. So for about 18 months, I had to go on roller coasters and pretend I liked them when inside I was in fear of my life the entire time. It's nothing quite like, like going down, like we went on the big one in Blackpool, which at that stage was the biggest roller coaster in the whole of Europe. And when we went down the first thing, I thought, this is how I die. And I kind of, I just resigned myself to death. But then the thing is, you then don't die. And you're like, I'm alive. It's a miracle. But then it keeps going. And so you have this near-death experience about nine times in three minutes. And then they take a photo when you're at your near-death experience. So Beth was there smiling away. And my friend was there smiling away. Another friend was smiling away. And I was like gripping it and like just peeking over the edge in complete and utter terror. So that's one of my... Good, you're laughing along. One of my real fears and, um, and always has been. I mean, and, but then there are other fears which are just entirely rational. They're reasonable. And how do we face the fears we have in life? How can we navigate them wisely? 
And how might we discover a courage that would help us even to thrive in the midst of our fears? Well, we see in this passage three people who have three different ways of facing fear. And the first one is false confidence, which collapses in the face of fear. We see in Judas, because what's happened is just before this, Jesus has entered Jerusalem as king. And the disciples, and certainly Judas, I think, were thinking, this is it, this is the moment. You know, we're his right-hand people, and he's going to come as king, establish his kingdom, kick out the Romans. He's going to reinstitute the nation. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be on the inside. We're going to have power and wealth and influence and prominence. It's going to be amazing. And then as the week goes on, they start to realize maybe it's not going to look quite how we had hoped. And it looks like Jesus isn't going to institute his kingdom in the way they had thought. And so they start to realize, wait a minute, if, if you do the things Jesus is doing, and you're not going to kick everyone out, eventually they are going to crush you. And so what's happening, I think, is Judas starts to realize, wait a minute, this isn't going to end well. And he's got a decision. And the decision he makes is that the costs of following Jesus are likely going to outweigh the benefits of following him. And that kind of goes like this. And so he thinks, this is the time to cut and run. This is the time to trade in my one card. My get out of jail free card, the one thing I can use to advantage. So I come out of this time of following Jesus with something to show for it. And that is to betray him. You'll know, I'm sure from your own experience, that drug cartels, um, generally speaking, <laughs> oh, maybe not. Uh, Drug cartels are only as strong as their weakest link. And so uh, often drug cartels work very hard to try and eliminate the weakest link. And the police and the enforcement agencies like the Serious Organized Crime Agency will work really hard to try and identify the weakest link in a cartel, arrest that person, and then try and flip them to get them to give evidence um, against their co-conspirators and in that way bring down the cartel just in case you wanted to know that's how it works. And, uh, and that's really what's happening here. But it only works for one person. only works for the first person through the gate. They're the only one who can really get out of it. And so Judas thinks, I'm going to be the first person. So when he realised Jesus is really serious about this, that he's not going to establish you know, a kingdom that's going to benefit Judas, but actually he's, he's going to give himself up and he might even die, and that would mean that I would suffer and die as well. He's thought, no, 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 it's time to cut and run. And so he goes... And uh, he sells Jesus out, as we know, for 40 pieces of silver. And that's the thing. Once you get into a cost-benefit analysis, things like that, I mean, it's a lot of money, but it wouldn't have been a lot of money unless he'd already started to weigh the costs of following Jesus against the benefits of following him. And in life, sometimes it can be like, sometimes we think the benefits are really high. Like we love Jesus and we experience his, his joy and his peace and his purpose. We think, oh yeah, this is great. And there's a few costs, but they're not significant. But then sometimes it goes the other way around. And we think, actually, this is quite challenging. People are treating us differently. We can't do all the things we wanted to do before. And maybe the costs are outweighing now, the benefits. And it's in that context that when someone offers you a promotion or a relationship which maybe isn't quite right or you know, something else or something else or something else. Or, you know, maybe as I found, I once got a job. I thought, oh yeah, God's given me a job. The blessings of following Jesus. And then I realized that the people in that job were a bit funny about me being a Christian. And they kind of made it known that they didn't think I should speak about him. And they, they made it known that maybe my career would go better if I kind of kept faith on the fringes. And suddenly I was tempted to weigh the costs against the benefits. But even if you started to do that, it's not too late just to let the silver to fall to the floor 
and remind yourself that the benefits will always outweigh the costs, even if the costs are great. What's so sad about Judas is that all he wanted was on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, but he traded in Jesus early, and so he lost out. He trades in his fear of failure for the apparent certainty of success, the confidence that that gave him. So it looks like the odds are now in Judas' favour. You know, Jesus is there just with his disciples, but Judas has his back by his religious leaders, by the officials. He's got a detachment of Roman troops with him, crack troops, ready to get busy. And they pick the time, they pick the place, they go under cover of darkness. They've got the element of surprise. They've got their torches, they've got their swords drawn, they've got their weapons out. It's an ambush and they're going to strike a decisive blow, take Jesus out, arrest him, scatter the disciples. And as they approach, this really strange thing happens. Because you would expect as they come in the dead of night to arrest Jesus like that, that everyone would flee. And what happens is instead, Jesus comes to meet them. That doesn't normally happen. When the police do a dawn raid, the person doesn't normally come out of the house and say, hi officers, what's up? But that's what Jesus does here. Who is it you want? Looks like they got more than they bargained for. When I was studying here, another student was at home in the holidays and he went to meet a friend in a pub and he happened to go in his car, which was a red Vauxhall Corsa. But the problem was the drug squad of that town had been tipped off that a significant drug dealer was going to be outside that pub that night in a red Vauxhall Corsa. And it didn't occur to the police that the Vauxhall company, in a crazy idea to make a profit, might have made more than one red Vauxhall Corsa. And so as he pulled up in his car, the police came, raid came in. They smashed his windows of his car, pulled him out through his driver door, dragged him along the pavement, threw him in the back of the van, the police van, and started interrogating him. Where are the drugs? Where are the drugs? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Where are the drugs? Don't give us that. Tell us where the drugs are. I don't know what you're talking about. We know who you are. We've had a tip off. Tell us where the drugs are. I don't know what you're talking about. Honestly, I'm just a student. Oh yeah, you're a student, are you? We'll give you student. Tell us where the drugs are. Anyway, eventually he comes to his senses. He says, you can't ask me that. They're like, what are you talking about? He said, if you've got reasonable grounds to suspect I've committed offence, you should have arrested me by now. You should caution me before you ask me questions. Everything that's going on here is like an illegal arrest, an illegal imprisonment. It's all contrary to the provisions of the police and criminal evidence at 1984. They're like, do you say you're a student? He's like, yeah, where? Oh, Oxford. What are you studying? Law. Oh. <laughs> then on the radio, someone says, sir, um, there's another car that's pulled up outside the pub. It's also a red Vauxhall Corsa. They got slightly more than they bargained for with him. And here, Judas and the soldiers get slightly more than they bargained for. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. I am him. Ego and me. I am. Before anyone was, I am. Jesus uses the same phrase as he often does in John's gospel that God used when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. The world orientates around me, not vice versa. The world discovers who it is from me, not vice versa. 
I am before any of this came to be and I will be long after it passes away. I am. And as he does this, the extraordinary thing happens. It's like Jesus reveals just a bit of his true glory and all of the soldiers, all of the leaders, all of the religious officials, Judas as well, they all kind of take a step back in fear and then they fall on their backs. All of their confidence falls away. All of their strength disappears. Doesn't help them. The weapons, the armour, the titles, the status. See, when you come face to face with Jesus, with the real Jesus, everything is stripped away and you have to face him completely on your own. And when you come face to face with the real Jesus, you will either fall back in fear or you will fall into his arms in gratitude. There is no in-between. So you can't stand in the presence of the living God. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the priests would fall on their faces in awe. When Isaiah got a glimpse of the living God, he said, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams because I've seen the glory of God. When Peter came face to face with Jesus, he said, depart from me, I'm sinful. I can't be near you. And here, Jesus says, I am. And it's enough to knock a squadron of soldiers off their feet. I mean, imagine Judas. He's lying on his back thinking, I thought I traded my fears for confidence and I'm face to face with the most awesome being there ever has been or will be. What have I done? Jesus says, I ask you again, who do you seek? And I imagine slightly more nervously, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Who do you seek? It's a great question because we seek all sorts of things. We seek confidence, we seek purpose, we seek security. And Jesus provides lots of those things. But he's not a genie, he's not a teddy bear. He's not just there when you're down. He is your king and your Lord or he's nothing at all. And when you come face to face with him, you realise that all of the security, all of the strength, all of the struts, all the things we build our lives on, they're not going to be enough. You see, false confidence collapses in the face of real fear, in the face of who Jesus really is. But then the second thing we see in this passage is that weak courage crumbles in the face of fear. I love this. It says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, just in case you wanted to look him up. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, Peter is also facing a bit of a crisis at this moment. He's got a lot of confidence, naturally probably quite a bit of courage. He hasn't sold Jesus out, he stayed by his side. And when the mob turn up, he's there, he's ready for action, he's armed, he's fired up. My guess is he's probably a little bit excited. Because he's one of those guys, I don't know if you have those friends who like, you know, they, they could start a fight in an empty room. Like, I have a friend like that, he's called Wayne. I spent most of my years between 18 and 22 stopping him getting into fights in nightclubs. Like persuading bouncers not to kick him out. Apologising to people who had said, you want some? too. <laughs> Just all the time. 
I think Peter's a bit like that. You know, the soldiers come, they got their swords out. Peter's like, this is it. I've been waiting for this moment. My king knows how to fight. <laughs> you guys are going to watch this. And then Jesus goes forward. He says one word, they're all on their feet. Peter's like, this is just the beginning. This is going to be awesome. I just can't wait to see this unfold. And then this, for Peter, this terrifying, like confusing, baffling thing happens. Jesus then says, well, if you're looking for me, let them go. He surrenders himself to them. You can imagine Peter just like looking and saying, no, 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 not like that. No, 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 that's not what happens next. You destroy them, you smoke everyone, the emperor, Herod, the whole crew, and then we rule and reign. What's going on? What are you doing? Don't do that. And it's like this incredibly poignant moment when, when the son of God is surrendering himself into something that's been in motion since before the dawn of time, before the foundations of the world were laid, the Lamb of God was slain. Things are in motion that cannot be undone by this point. And Jesus is coming out and saying, I'm here. I am. You're going to take me? Take me. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, what do I do? I need to get in the way. So Peter, almost panicking, thinks, look, Jesus, let me deal with this now. And sometimes we can be like that. We can pray and we ask God to do stuff. And then, and then we think, what? Well, I'm not sure God has quite got this, so actually I'm going to take this into my own hands now, God. Thanks so much for you with your sovereignty and wisdom and da-da-da-da-da, but I need to do something now because this isn't working out the way I'd hoped. We kind of move God to the side and we say, now it's time for me to make things happen. It's me to do something. Me to take an action. Sorry, God, you had your chance. I gave you six months. It's me now. What does Peter do? Well, Peter kind of reaches down and, um, you know, pulls out his sword. I just find it so fascinating. Like, <laughs> Jesus is there and Peter's like, look, get out of the way. I'll deal with this. You step back. And he pulls out his sword and, like, cuts off the servant's ear. And um, I can just imagine Jesus' face as he's watching this unfold, like, what are you doing? Three years I've been investing in you. This is, this is my moment. What are you doing? I've, I've chosen these words very carefully. 2,000 years, people in Oxford are going to be studying the meaning of ego and me. And you're like wading in with a sword. What are you doing? Oh, you chopped off his ear, did you? That will help. He's not going to be able to hear on his other side. Wow. Why don't you chop off his finger, his little toe, then we'll all escape. Wish I'd thought of that, Peter. It like, seems so futile. He's like, put that sword away. What are you playing at? I find it very comforting at this time. Jesus has just said, you know, if you're looking for me, let them go. That once Peter's cut off his ear, he doesn't turn around and said, on second thoughts, take him. Like just, I'm done with him. I can't deal with it anymore. It's just, I just, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting though. It's like Peter is prepared. He has enough courage to wield his sword for Jesus. But he doesn't have enough courage to lay his sword down for Jesus. I was reading this week and I, you might know that the Knights Templar, when they were baptised, these soldiers, these warriors, they'd be baptised with their swords. But they would hold their swords above their heads. So when they were baptised, their bodies would be baptised, 
but their swords would be out of the water and stay out of the water. And it was their way of signaling, of saying, well, well, God, you can have me, but I don't want you to have me, the warrior. I don't want you to have my sword. I'm still going to take on who I want to take on. I'm still going to fight who I want to fight. I'm still going to worry who I want to war. And your sword signifies strength, signifies your skill, signifies your status, it signifies your security. And I wonder what you're tempted to hold out of the water, so to speak. Like, you can have all of me, but not this. You can't have this. And maybe it's not a sword these days, unlikely it is. But maybe it's your skill. Maybe it's your status. Maybe it's your security. Maybe it's something very different. Maybe, maybe you just hold out your phone. Lord, don't get this wet. <laughs> it's not good for it. Plus, there's some DMs on there that I sent to people that I don't think you'd appreciate reading. So I'm just going to keep this out of the water. Sometimes after midnight when I can't sleep, I look at some things. I don't think they're your kind of thing to see, God, so I'll just keep that out of the water. Like that's just between me and me. Nothing to worry about, nothing to do with you. I'll keep my phone out of the water. You know, maybe for you it's your wallet. You're like, I, I can give you everything, God, but, but my money is my money. I'll keep that out of the water. Maybe it's something else entirely. But Jesus wants all of you, or he can't have any of you. So it's so interesting. If Peter can't see what's really happening, if he could see Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is surrendering himself, not because he's powerless, but because he knows that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And even what is intended for harm, he is powerful to turn for good. And so all Peter can see is that which is opposing Jesus. And in doing so, he kind of loses sight of Jesus himself. If he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, if he'd watched his face in this moment, then he, I imagine he would have seen that Jesus was quite calm. Jesus was quite peaceful. Jesus was quite confident. Jesus was full of courage. Jesus is not anxious in the midst of all that's happening in that time. In the midst of the crisis, he has poise. And Peter might have found courage not to start throwing his weight around. You know, these are challenging times in our world, in our nation, in the church, in our lives. And the fear can push you into some strange reactions, some strong reactions. I'm, I hope you haven't cut off someone's ear recently, but you might have, you know, sent a text, a person, written an email you just can't recall, said something that you can't quite get back now. Because the fear was crowding in. You felt you had to react. You had to do something because God weren't doing nothing. Look at Jesus. He's not surprised. He's not anxious. He's not shocked. He's not spinning in the middle of the crisis. He still trusts his father. He knows who's on the throne. You know, weak courage crumbles in the face of fear. But we see here in Jesus, there's a courage which completely eclipses fear. I love this verse, verse four. Jesus, knowing all that was gonna to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? See, courage doesn't mean the absence of fear. It's impossible to be courageous where fear is not present. Jesus felt fear. He was fully human. Tim Keller says, Christianity is the only faith which says that one of the attributes of the God is courage. Because no other religion has a God that needed courage. It means Jesus 
knows fear, so he empathizes with your weakness. He's been there. He knows how it feels. So when you come to him full of fear, afraid, paralyzed by fear, you're not coming to someone who doesn't understand, who shrugs their shoulders. He's like, what are you worried about? Jesus knows what it's like to navigate fear. He's fully human, but he he never sinned. So he knows how to discern between the difference between false fear and real fear, cowardice and, and actual fear about what might happen. He knows the fear of facing trial, the fear of being abandoned by friends, the fear of being betrayed by those who are close to him. And he knows above it all the fear of what it would cost him to do what he knew he had to do. Knowing all that was to happen to him, he went out. You know, true courage is to face your greatest fear, to feel it, to look it in the face and to do the right thing anyway. Jesus, I have no doubt, felt fear. He was overwhelmed. He was troubled. But his confidence in his father was so total, so complete, he could say, shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Because the thing is, the very thing that gave Jesus confidence and courage in the midst of fear was his confidence and courage in his father. And then as he approached the cross, as he drank the cup, he, he was forsaken. He lost the very thing. The very thing that enabled him to live and eclipsed his fear. How could he do that? Well, it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before him? What did Jesus not have since before the dawn of the world? When he was there with his Father and the Holy Spirit. In joy and love. What was it he came to find and claim and win that he didn't already have? You. You're the joy set before him. You were the thing he fixed his eyes on when he went out to meet what he had to. When he endured the cross. You were that which he came to save Your passion is what you're prepared to suffer for. It's very difficult to access courage without knowing what your passion is because your passion is what you're prepared to suffer for, what you're willing to put yourself in harm's way for. And courage is not, you know, I can do it. That's that's false confidence. That's self-confidence. Courage is I must do it. This matters more than me. I'm going to put myself on the line. Even if it costs me my security and my comfort and my convenience, I'm going to do this because it matters so much, because it matters to me, because I'm passionate about it, because it is my passion that gives me courage. And Jesus' passion is you. You're what he came to win. You're what he came to save. You're what enabled him to have courage. Even as his father forsake him, so that he might win you. He says, I've not lost one of these. See, when Jesus has taken hold of that, which cost him everything to win, when he's taken hold of you, you can know he's never going to let go of you. Nothing's going to prize you from his grasp. He's going to hold you secure. He knows what you're facing. He knows the fears that come about you. He knows the storms that are around He knows the troubles that are going on, but he's taken hold of you. He's gripped you and that which he's taken hold of, he ain't letting go of. Just look at what it cost him to win you. And when you see that, 
when you see him, it grows courage within you. A courage that doesn't just stay with you, but overflows in a way that might transform you, your friends, your family, the people around you. That people might say to you, what is it that marks you out? What is it that makes you different? Where does your courage come from? In Jesus' name, amen.